So this is our Advent season uh, sermon series, and this is week two, which as you can see on the wall here, some churches theme out the Advent week. So last week was technically hope. We didn't go into that as much as you might think. Today is peace, although as you'll see, um, we might not go into that as much as you might think as well. Although the texts that we're going to be looking at this evening do focus on some of these themes, but that's not my primary uh, point this evening. Okay, so this is Isaiah chapter 11 is going to, where we're going to be spending our time this evening. And remember, as of last week, we have started observing uh, the lectionary. So we are following the passages that have been set out for churches in America and even globally to use surrounding these topics. Um, it's called the Revised Common Lectionary, and we will be looking at the same text that everyone else that uses this resource will be looking at as well, which can make for some neat conversation if you happen to be in a community where other people are using those texts as well. So this is Isaiah chapter 11. You'll also note that the lectionary doesn't exactly do us any favors when we're talking about Christmas. You would think that these stories would be about the birth of Jesus and the different characters and things like that, but not so much. Um, As our reading, let us know, Advent means coming. And we're in this period of time where we are celebrating the coming of Jesus, both in his birth here on earth to become a human taking on flesh, but we also are looking forward to Jesus' second coming, and we're living within that tension, and we'll talk about that a bit later. So this is Isaiah chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. It says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth." He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So oftentimes around here, we say that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, everything has changed. Everything has changed in a cosmic scope where through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus... It's all different now. I want to give you just a couple examples of that. For the authors of the New Testament, everything was different. I want to read you a passage um, from the book of Matthew, but I want to set this up a little bit. In light of 
the death and resurrection of Jesus, in light of this surprising move where no one was anticipating their Messiah, their Savior, to be one who was sacrificed on the cross. No one was anticipating Jesus to die, and those few days in between the death and resurrection of Jesus would have probably entailed some of the most difficult days in the lives of the disciples because of that mindset. They were expecting their Messiah to show up and to do away with the oppressors of the day, which happened to be Rome. They were expecting Jesus to be victorious. They were expecting to be removed out of this place of oppression and suffering. They were expecting a new exodus in a very physical, tangible, literal sense where they would become free, where the age to come would be ushered in through Jesus, where everything would change because of him in that victorious manner. When Jesus is raised from the dead, however, he teaches that the things that are a bit different. Through his sacrifice, yes, evil and sin and death have been conquered and we get to participate in that, but what they saw was a victory that they weren't quite expecting. It wasn't on the, on the scope of things, but through Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection, everything has changed for the authors of the New Testament. Now, at the time, their Bible was the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, however you want to talk about this, that was their set of scriptures. And because of what happened with Jesus, they would go back and look at these texts and see Jesus in the landscape of the Old Testament. A lot of times we think that there are these prophecies about Jesus and what he would fulfill, which is very true, but sometimes they would actually look at Jesus and see his life and his death and his resurrection in things that weren't necessarily anticipating the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Are you tracking with me? It's as if this monumental event in human history has completely shaped everything that these folks were now seeing in the world. And I would say as followers of Jesus, that should be true of us as well. We see Jesus in the midst of good art and good films and good books, and we can see those redemptive strands within the stories that give us life and hope. Can I say Harry Potter? I can, and all God's people said amen, of course. So this is Matthew chapter two, and you'll see a lot of times in Matthew one through three, he uses language such as, thus fulfills the word of the prophet, okay? And the reason why I wanna show you this is because this isn't necessarily a prophetic text, but this is a text where it's demonstrating that Matthew has been so captivated by Jesus that he cannot help but see his story in the stories of Israel's faith, Okay, now for those of you that are familiar with the birth narratives of Jesus, this is the bit where they're going, uh, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus are going down to Egypt, okay, to escape Herod. This should be clear in the text, but just in case it's not, there you go. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. This is verse 13. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now this text here is a quotation from the book of Hosea, and in its context it has absolutely nothing to do with Jesus whatsoever. It's not looking forward, it's actually looking back to the monumental moment in Israel's history, the Exodus, 
where they were facing oppression and they were in slavery and bondage and God leads them out through Moses, through the Red Sea into freedom and life and that becomes their story of redemption. And now we hear Matthew saying Jesus is, is like that but here in Hosea he's looking backwards not trying to say that Jesus was going to be this person in the future. It wasn't a prophetic text in the way that we think of prophetic texts. But it's Matthew saying everything is now Jesus because of the gravity of what he has done through his life and his death and his resurrection. The point in all of this is is simple. Everything changes because of what Jesus has done. And we see that for the New Testament authors. We're now, big fancy word, you can use it at parties to impress people, where they're hermeneutic. The lenses through which they now read scripture is a Jesus-centered hermeneutic, okay? If you guys do that, use, use that word throughout the week, please like Facebook me or text me or something. Just let me know that you've used that so we can be growing in our knowledge together, okay? All right, so for the authors of the New Testament, everything has changed and we see that in how they're beginning to read scriptures, okay? And for the readers of the Old Testament, for us, it has impacted how we read as well. We know the end of the story. We know what happens at Easter. We don't just celebrate Jesus in the manger. We celebrate a risen Savior. We know how the story ends, and now we begin to see that in the Old Testament as well. So when we hear a text like Isaiah chapter 11, where it says, a shoot shall come from the stump of Jesse, For those of you that are extremely churched or those of you that are aware of this story, you can begin to say to yourself, oh, it's Jesus. No big deal. Like, there will be a shoot from the stump of Jesse. That's Jesus, of course. So everything has changed because of what Jesus has done, and now we put on those same glasses where we begin to see Jesus in the Old Testament. And I think that we're in good company when we begin to see that, when we look at Isaiah chapter 11 and see Jesus in the midst of that. However, we would be remiss if we did not explore the ancient Near Eastern context of the book of Isaiah. Am I the only one that's excited about this? Quite possibly, but I'll just give you, it's very brief, okay? and not, not how I usually use that term. This is actually going to be very brief. Uh, this is Walter Brueggemann. He says, the context of Isaiah 11 is a deep failure of the Davidic dynasty. Now you see, back at this stage, everyone in Israel had their hopes on David and the seed that would come through David, the people, the descendants of David that would reign on the kingdom forever. They would sit on the throne and they would, they would reign and rule forever. But because of what has happened, it has been completely and utterly decimated. David, through his failure, through his sin, his his kingdom has failed in a sense. And this is where we see this context of Isaiah chapter 11. It's a deep failure of the Davidic dynasty, the one that had carried the hopes of Judah. This is the one that they thought was going to become their end-all, be-all. The deep failure assumed here could be in a crisis of Ahaz or Hezekiah, kings at the time uh, in the book of Isaiah that kind of failed. Or it could possibly refer to the exile of the 6th century when Israel and Judah was completely decimated by Assyria and and Babylon. It says we are not told. Either way, Judah's Davidic hopes are spent. They are spent. They are dashed. They are finished. The root of Jesse is a stump. The tree has been completely cut off at its base. 
And now people are beginning to wonder what in the world is going to happen next. And this is the genius of the book of Isaiah. It grants us a hope. There is a shoot, a small bit of life coming up from this stump to shoot. It's a faint sign of life or growth or possibility. One scholar says this future Davidic king will be an embodiment of insight. This is where in the text of Isaiah it says the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Not like at any other point in the Old Testament where the spirit would come and go. This is the spirit resting on this individual and it would rest on, on this person and become an embodiment of insight. He will walk in Yahweh's way in ruling the people and will encourage the people as a whole in that direction. He will become an exemplar for the people following the ways of Yahweh. He will implement mishpat and tzedakah, two Hebrew terms there for justice and righteousness. And you could even flesh that out within the Old Testament. Those are like the key terms within Old Testament theology, the justice and the righteousness in the country and thus work on behalf of ordinary people rather than powerful people. This is the beautiful part of the book of Isaiah. It's about the poor. It's about the broken it's about the marginalized and the oppressed. And this king-type figure would rule with equity and justice, not taking bribes, not looking at the power of the people or the money of the people or the status of the people, but everyone would get a fair shake. He will take violent action, it goes further to say, he will take violent action against the powerful so that the powerless will no longer be at their mercy like sheep no longer have to fear wolves. This is Isaiah chapter 11, verse three, some of the texts we've looked at. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. If you read the Old Testament, this is the problem of the kingship. These folks were so taken, perhaps, by bribes and their rule could potentially be so perverse that this was not always true. It was not always true that those in power would not view those based on their external appearance. It sometimes was more true that they would rule or judge based on the things that they received in return. It says, but with righteousness, he will judge the needy, not the powerful, not just the powerful, at least, and with justice or equity, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. Now this, at this moment, and even for us right here, this is extremely good news. That this king figure would see people across the board and not judge them based on appearance or just on the things that they say, but he would engage with righteousness and justice and equity for all peoples. The second lection of this week, the second week of Advent, which, yeah, it does kind of center around peace, we see in Psalm 72. This is a psalm that talks about the king, the coming king in Israel. It says, endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. May he judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. May he defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. May he crush the oppressor. This is what the people were wanting. A king who would reign and rule similar to the reign and rule of Yahweh with fairness and justice and equity. This would be a rule for all the poor and powerless like the song that we sung a bit ago. 
Now, Isaiah switches metaphors here and goes from this uh, coming ruler, this shoot from the stump of Jesse to the, the practical ways that this would work itself out. And a lot of commentators don't quite know how to bring these two things together or at least encompass it in all of its power. Okay? But it says, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. Everything, now if I can get a little New Testament for you, because of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, everything has changed. The very fabric of this world has seemed to be put on its head because of the significance of what Jesus has done. I've got to tell you this, the, the passage goes on a little bit farther and it talks about like the little kids putting their hands in the dens of vipers or something crazy like that. And a friend of mine was talking about how in their children's sermon, which was based on Isaiah 11, uh, the minister said, now how many of you would want to put your baby brother or baby sister's hand in the den of a poisonous snake? And one of the kids, of course, said, I would. <laughs> okay, so there's humor in Isaiah, I guess. Um, but this rule, it would accomplish impossibilities. And one of the points that Isaiah is bringing out here is that through the reign of this coming ruler, which I don't think Isaiah quite had a handle on what that would look like or what that would be or the significance of that. Jesus was a complete, I might want to tone it down here a little bit, but close to it, a complete surprise. And the way that he lived and the sacrifice that he made and his defeat of death, it was a surprise on the landscape of, of what people were anticipating. But this rule, it was accomplishing impossibilities, and I want us to see that this evening. Where, where through the, the justice and the righteousness of this individual, everything would change so much so that the wolf would be able to live with the lamb. And the lion lay down with the other animal that a lion shouldn't lay down with, whatever it is that's escaping my memory at the moment. But everything would be changed and impossibilities would be able to take place. Now, all of this leads us up to this big question. What does it mean for us to wait now in light of Jesus' coming? What does it mean for us to wait now in light of Jesus' kingship? And this is what we talked about and introduced last week, and this is what Advent is all about tension. It's about the space between when we look back and we see the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and everything that it has meant. And I totally believe it when I say that it has fundamentally changed the world and everything in it. And we as believers, those of us that have said Jesus is Lord and proclaimed that in our lives and begin to walk that out, we become transformed people and we get to become agents of grace and agents of hope and agents of love and mercy and forgiveness and life because of what Jesus has done for us. Yet, we are waiting Jesus' second coming where he will put everything to rights, where everything will finally and climactically be restored. And we live in that tension where we still suffer with our relationships and we still suffer with our health and we still suffer perhaps with our finances and we still suffer under oppression or prejudice or what have you. And we still feel what some of these folks felt way back then. 
And there's a tension between what Jesus has done and what we are waiting for Jesus to do, and we are caught in the middle of that. So what is it that we do in this time? One scholar says this, and we looked at this last week, but just to reiterate, so we wait for Christ's coming by becoming the Christ people, putting off the deeds that mark the world, not subjected to Christ's reign of peace and justice. In other words, we put on the armor of light. We say no to the deeds of darkness. We become a physical embodiment of King Jesus here and now for everyone else in the midst of the tension. We wait for Christ's coming by becoming that future ahead of his arrival so that when he arrives, he will behold his own as though looking in a mirror. We are living as kingdom people, anticipating and waiting the coming of Jesus where everything will be made right. This is why we call ourselves the Restoration Project, because it is ongoing and because we have been invited in to participate in this and we see the fruits of that in our relationships and in our partnerships with Epoch and the community garden. And we see the fruits of our labors in that where Jesus' name is made high. Where people begin to see hope that's worked out in a physical, tangible way, even in the midst of that tension. Now, here from our text today, do we live then like the lamb. Some people would say that Jesus has provided us this example of self-sacrifice and we too should be those who are able to sacrifice ourselves. True love has nothing better than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends and we have seen Jesus do that and we should become then those peaceable people that give an image of what it looks like in the world to come. Now for the skeptics in the room and the people that are thoughtful folks, you think, yeah, but if a lamb lays down with a wolf, the wolf is going to completely destroy the lamb here and now. To which I say, yeah, probably. But before we even go there, I want to throw a wrench into our thinking because in this passage, I'm not even sure if this is the right question. Perhaps the more uh, appropriate question for us is, or do we, like the wolf, surrender our power? Because when we read scripture, it is too easy for us to put ourselves in the role of the sufferer and not to see the ways that we might actually be the one who is inflicting pain and hurt upon other people. We say, I'm not the wolf, not me. We say, I'm, I'm not the whatever, and we fill in the blank there. But I think that in our context, and we see in this passage of Isaiah, what the impossibility is that Jesus is allowing us to see is that we might be in the role of this one who is driven by power and status and hoped for importance and significance that is driven by the lust of money and possessions and relationships and we will do whatever it is that we need to do to put ourselves and our families in those places of power. Another lection from this week's cycle 
This is Romans chapter 15. It says, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another. Another way you could translate this, welcome one another just as Christ accepted or welcomed you in order to bring praise to God. Sit with that for a moment. I'm not the wolf. I'm not the one in a place of power. And we hear this word from Paul, accept or welcome one another just as Christ accepted or welcomed you in order to bring praise to God. Have we forgotten that we were once children of wrath destined for destruction, but by God's great mercy, he has brought us into this family? Have we forgotten that we have been accepted and welcomed? Have we forgotten that so much that we no longer live in that way where we accept and we welcome others? For Paul, this is set within perhaps one of the most notorious splits within church history where we have Jews and we have Gentiles. And what Paul is trying to do is is bring the Gentiles into the fold. He says, for I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed and moreover that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again, it says, rejoice you Gentiles with his people. This is scandalous at the time. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again, our text from Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up. One who will arise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God is doing a new thing. You know who's doing it? No, come on. Where's my DC talk people in the mix? God is doing a new thing. You know who's doing it? No, who's doing it? God is doing a new thing. Toby Mac before he became Toby Mac, okay? but I want you to focus in on those two words, just as. Accept, welcome one another just as Christ has accepted or welcomed you. Do not, in the midst of Advent, do not in the midst of your own season of waiting, do not in the midst of this glorious time of of the year, do not diminish, do not forget where you have come from And do not forget where you are going, so much so that we do not invite others in with us. What does it mean for us to wait now in light of Jesus' coming? I would suggest a few things to you. One, we live a life of transformation. We do not forget that we have been accepted, that we have been welcomed, and we allow that to transform who we are as we talked about last week, that we say no to the deeds of darkness and we put on the armor of light, that we live a life that defies impossibilities. I didn't really know how to phrase this, but 
in some ways of thinking about it, the fact that we are here and the fact that we are serving Jesus and the fact that we are trying to be welcoming and accepting and the fact that we are trying to speak a message of hope and love is an impossibility. The fact that our heart has been changed so radically to now be conformed to the image of Jesus is unfathomable. Do not forget that and allow that to motivate how we live each and every day and then begin to expect the impossible in your relationships and in the people that you have written off in your life. Allow God to be the God of the impossible as you see the hardness of people fade away and the love of Jesus completely overtake who they are and allow yourself to be perhaps one of the impetuses in that transformation. We surrender our power and our privilege. As we think about Isaiah in the text there, the, the wolf will live with the lamb, and it's easy for us to take on that martyr complex, and perhaps some of you, that is exactly where you should identify, because that is the life that you have lived, but there's others in the room where that's not you, and we might better identify with the wolf or the person of power and the person who is subjugating others. Acknowledge that and begin to move away from that where we surrender our own power and our privilege for the sake of of the gospel, we live a life of radical acceptance and welcome, and I don't know what that looks like for you, but I just want to throw that up there and allow the spirit to prick you where you need to be pricked this evening. And finally, we entrust ourselves to the just judge, Jesus Christ. The shoot from the stump of Jesse, the good king who rules with justice and righteousness and equity. The one who does not just see our external appearance or hear the things that we say, but goes beyond that and judges according to who we are at the very core of our being. The one who welcomes us into this family. May we entrust ourselves to him in all things. So for some of you, as you're sitting here this evening, there are things that are weighing on you and there are circumstances and situations that you are going through. And, and my hope is that you will begin to see that we have an advocate for us and we have a just judge who is working and moving. Do not give up on him yet. And in the meantime, church, become the hands and feet of Jesus. Become his agents of change and his agents of restoration and hope. Do not allow the people around us to suffer, but have the eyes to see where they need us to step in and to love, to accept, to welcome, but also to invite people in to that transforming relationship with Jesus Christ. Wherever it is that you are this evening, my hope is that we will be fueled by peace, yes, internally, that we will be advocates for peace around us and that we will begin to be motivated to follow Jesus in a way that we have not followed him yet.